Hi, everyone. This is the first meeting of the Existential Hope Group in 2022. Uh, 2021 was, uh, you know, I guess, uh, another pretty um, unpredictable and quite, um, I think, yeah, quite a year full of surprises. Um, but I'm really, really uh, hopeful at what this group uh, has created. I think we had a few really fantastic meetings um, that started quite strong um, and uh, were actually uh, able to more and more also play our technical meetings into this group. So ultimately, I think just as a reminder, this group, I think, is really about trying to um, provide a little bit more of direction of, hey, where could we be headed uh, if um, uh, if we don't all kill ourselves? Um, and so I think that this is like a nice layer to actually provide some kind of um, coding and some kind of purpose to the technologies that many of our technical groups are uh, working on. Um, and so it's, uh, it's, it's usually, uh, I think some of my most fun conversations were had in this group. So welcome back everyone. Uh, very excited. Um, so this year we're launching actually a little bit of a new, um, uh, we, we're not launching one new project. We're launching a variety of new projects, uh, I should say. And maybe I'll share a little, little bit more about those later, but, um, what is relevant to this session in particular is that we're now launching a special existential podcast episode and there'll be more information on this soon. Um, but the idea is that uh, these podcasts really are a way in which you can kind of sit in as we interview our senior uh, Foresight Fellows um, with a distinct uh, approach that we want to interview them about why the future is exciting, um, what kind of puzzle piece of the future they in particular are working on, how they can help other people that are still finding their way, um, and um, how we can collaborate um, really as a community um, much more toward futures of existential hope um, rather than existential angst. So thanks for joining. Um, this will be uh, a pretty like um, kind of like back and forth interview between Christine, uh, Beatrice and I. And um, maybe at the end, if we have time, we open it up for questions. But this one will be a pretty open-ended podcast episode that will be published on Fawcett's pub, uh, podcast as well. Okay, great. So uh, maybe uh, like a good way to segue into this, um, we're starting with Christine Peterson. And, um, you know, in, in addition to being one of Fawcett's senior fellows, uh, Christine is also the co-founder of Fawcett Institute. And so uh, we really have uh, quite a lot uh, to thank you for, um, for really having created one of the early long-termist organization, one of the earliest long-term organizations uh, around with a really, really, I think, strong legacy and with a really long uh, time horizon for the future. So thank you a lot for, um, yeah, for actually being the reason why many of us uh, are here today. Um, I remember when I uh, I first discovered Foresight Online, um, I was back then still uh, studying philosophy, philosophy of science and technology, and I was pretty disillusioned by all the disillusionment. Um, and then I somehow... Um, discuss it and it was just really quite amazing how how early on so many people were so deeply optimistic about the future with much less technological um advance that we had back then uh, and how that has pulled through until now so i thought it was deeply inspiring then i think i cold emailed cold emailed you guys and somehow may, snuck my way to san francisco and from there on really just like clung on um as, as long as i could until now uh, really being in the really fortunate position of uh, carrying on the legacy that uh, you guys have created. So thank you for that. I should also say thank you, Christine, for being really one of the uh, carrying stones of many of the Bay Area nonprofit ecosystem that is uh, focused on long-termism. I think that, uh, you know, as someone that is leading a nonprofit, many people really just 
um, uh, have 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 almost the whole organization uh, to thank for your for your mentorship. So thanks a lot for really building up an entire ecosystem. Thank you for being such a truly early adopter. I just I remember when you, uh, let's say five years ago or something, talked about the Ura ring, which is something that now almost everyone interested in their own personal longevity uh, is wearing and, and, and signal boosting. And five years ago, you talked about it for the first time. And, and, and I, like, I remember just thinking like, wait, what, what is this? What is this for? And I think this is just a token example of like, you're really, really early on catching things extremely early and, uh, and then really just not stopping until people um until people uh, gra- can grok the value and then eventually it becomes uh, like a second skin that many people in uh, silicon valley cherish deeply so thanks for uh, being such an incredible mentor for many people at foresight for the entire ecosystem thank you at always having your um yeah your um your finger on on what would be uh, important in the long term and thank you for building uh, all of us up so i'm uh, really really excited to have you on today um so maybe we'll start with a little bit of a, a few questions about just um, to set the stage a little bit, I would love to know um, maybe to just share with the community uh, what you're working on and perhaps how you got into it. Um, and yeah, your life story in a few minutes, uh, if I know that's a hard ask, but uh, maybe we can try it. Sure, that sounds fun. Thanks, Alison. Um, the way I think about my work is that I try to steer technologies in positive directions and away from negative directions. Um, and what got me started was um, I was a fairly typical undergraduate uh, at MIT studying chemistry. Uh, not a particularly, I wasn't particularly dedicated to the future at that point. Um, but one of the other students was working uh, on a new area, uh, which has eventually turned into atomically precise manufacturing or molecular machine systems. And that was the other Foresight co-founder, Eric Drexler. And I realized, uh, as he did, of course, that, wow, this is going to be a very big deal. So um, rather than go to medical school, I decided, no, I'm going to earn to give. Those of you from the effective altruist movement will recognize that term. So I went to work, uh, made a bunch of money as an engineer, and under, under, uh, did the underwriting financially of the first book for Foresight, which at that, which is uh, Engines of Creation, still worth reading. I highly recommend it, even after all these years. Uh, and we also realized that although Boston, where MIT is, is a wonderful place, that Silicon Valley probably was the right place to found an organization to promote these ideas. And so, uh, uh, we moved the organization to um, to Silicon Valley, and when the book came out, there was a, a physical postal address in the back. This is pre-internet, believe it or not, right? Can that even happen? But um, there was a physical postal address. People could write to us, and they did uh, in the thousands. Um, there was tremendous outpouring of excitement because this was an optimistic technological vision. Not that it ignored the downsides. It did not. It really addressed the downsides, but um, it did chart a path to a positive future uh, in science and technology. And I think that was something that really appealed to a lot of folks because this was a kind of a limits to growth um, environment where people were feeling, feeling bad about lack of resources, expensive resources. So a, an approach to a clean manufacturing future of abundance was super exciting to people. 
Um, and you know the history since then, right? Foresight is going strong. Uh, we are over 30 years uh, on and uh, doing better than ever, frankly, uh, under our new leadership. So I'm super pleased with how Foresight's doing. Yeah, well, I, I can only echo that um, when you said that that book is still worth reading. Uh, one of my favorite quotes is from there. And uh, it goes, whether anyone else is out there or not, we are on our way. Expansion will proceed if we survive because we're part of a living system and life tends to spread. Pioneers will move outward into worlds without end. Others will remain behind building settled cultures throughout the oasis of space. Where goals change and complexity rules, limits need not bind us. New technologies will nurture new arts and new arts will bring new standards. The world of brute matter of, uh, offers room for great but limited growth. The world of mind and pattern, though, holds room for endless evolution and change. The possible seems room enough. I think, you know, really having uh, made this existential hope effort of like finding, um, you know, um, positive and optimistic, optimism inspiring um, um, writings about the future. Like this is still my favorite one and it's coming from uh, from that book. So um, I, I really do think that it's worthwhile to read. Um, okay, great. Um, well, you already touched upon the fact that uh, back then everything was uh, was postal and yeah, I actually had a physical address. And that reminds me, I think, also of an interesting tale. Um, you know, we had one of uh, the early prediction markets really set up at a Foresight member gathering, right, in 1999, I think with I think it was with uh, Robin Hansen and uh, Chris Hibbert. And uh, is it true that people back then, I think, voted by sending checks to our physical office, which is... I believe that is true. It's hard to believe now, but that it was early days, man. It was rough. Yeah. Well, I'm I'm still always uh, very impressed by how even the um yeah the the claims that were voted on back then are still so relevant now. So really cool to see. Um, can you perhaps like describe a little bit more of like yeah, just the the kind of feeling or the kind of community that uh, you guys grew back then, and um and yeah, just the the kind of um. The kind of feeling that one had to uh, to be part of Foresight back then, because I, I have to say I have a little bit of FOMO for the past. It sounded like it was a really fantastic time. And, you know, we are, I think, kickstarting this um, uh, again now. But I would love to. Yeah. Could you pick us up a little bit? How, how did it feel like back then? And, and, and what kind of uh, what of that can we keep for the future in terms of just um, a spirit of existential hope within the community? Yeah, it was a very exciting time. Um you had hundreds of people showing up at the meetings, thousands of people writing in. And uh, a lot of them would say the same thing, which is like, I feel like I finally found my community. Uh, finally, I have found some people who are excited about the future and who are uh, tackling, tackling the problems, but with a spirit of uh, optimism and excitement and, not, and saying, not only can we solve our problems, we can go on and build things that are even better than today. We're not limited to what we have today. So um, it was a largely useful crowd, like people in their 20s, early 30s, kind of like what you see in the effective altruism community today, very similar kinds of folks. Um, um, with, with a scattering of more seasoned people from Silicon Valley and around the world who would come in to provide some guidance to us. So uh, yeah, it was uh, a lot of the big names that you see in Silicon Valley today were involved in those early days as young people. And it was it was a lot of fun, I have to say. Yeah, whenever I look at our um, yeah, at our member registries from back then, I am I um, get get big imposter syndrome um, uh, almost in hindsight. And uh, and and also and like a really big 
uh, kind of like hope for now that we have also a really big community, like um, I think actually just really exploded over the past few years. I'm really excited for what people will be doing in the next 30 years so that we can then look back at um, having had them really early on in our community. So I think if that's any signal for, I think what people here in this community will be creating, then I'm very, very, very excited um, for just, yeah, for the, for this longer breath. I think in general, just, you know, um, I think being part of this organization that has existed for so long also gives me like a much longer perspective actually uh, in, into the future in the sense that I think I'm really interested in more coalition building across organizations um, and and people. And I'm just like so thrilled at what a really strong cohort of fellows we already have now since 2070s and that some of them already start mentoring each other. Like I really think that this like long-term breath in terms of organizational spirit is something that makes Foresight really, really unique and, and an exciting community to be a part of. Um, all right. Uh, maybe one question. Are there any specific, let's say, technologies or just examples that um, you know, you guys were already that were on your radar back then, where uh, which are now coming back online. Um, where yeah, you really have this almost like this revival moment um, of technologies that are now being uh, um, yeah that are that are in the public eye again. <laughs> sure. Um, when I first came to California, my friends were involved in the private rocket area. Now it was too early, uh, but uh, of course now. Now it's dramatically time, right? Now it's happening. Absolutely. So, so, uh, it's great to see those early efforts now flourishing. It's very exciting for that to be happening. Um, of course, the, uh, the nanotechnology is advancing, but another area that we were very excited about early on was agoric computing. Uh, and this is an area, of course, now that is really taking off. There, there are, they're well funded now. I feel like they have the resources they need to take it to take it the full way now. So that's something that our intelligent cooperation group is heavily involved with, and um, uh, I'm very excited to see that happen. And of course, you know, from say the late '70s, uh, we've been excited about longevity technology, but for decades, really, there wasn't that much going on. Okay. But now, wow, I mean, resources are really flowing into that field. And it's because the science is finally delivering, right? Um, not that this is an easy problem. None of these are easy problems. But the uh, the pace of advance in longevity science is finally where we'd like to see it, uh, get, getting close to where we'd like to see it. So um, that's another area where, you know, we were interested early on, but it's taken quite a while to really flourish. But now we're there. Yeah, I mean, just from even the last six years when we had our technical competitions on longevity and which were usually like hackathons in which different scientists got together and just um, really tried to tackle problems in longevity. Back then, really, it was um, a very small community. So um, and and now it's our biotech and health extension group is just so on. It's so flourishing. I, I really it's very hard to keep up with all of the projects that people are working on. So it's really, really yeah, just exciting to see the space explode with such high quality also um yeah maybe uh since you just mentioned it um you know do you want to say a few words about the intelligent cooperation group or in particular maybe about the book that mark you and i um are, are, are authoring and and how it was inspired by much of the early uh, discussions in the boric papers sure um so first to to address to describe the problem 
um, that we're trying to solve. Um, one of the big issues that, that distresses me is looking at kind of institutional failure that we see in the United States. Um, I think the pandemic has kind of really highlighted that for a lot of us. Um, and so if we, if our existing institutions are not succeeding, even I have to say the area of science, uh, those of you who follow the replicability crisis know that there's a big problem and it's not just in the social sciences. Apparently it extends into the physical sciences as well, which is super distressing, right? So if, if even our most cherished institutions are failing us, how are we going to build a better future? Well, fortunately, there we, there's the beginnings of a base on which we can build new institutions. Uh, and that comes out of the computing space, things like blockchain, the, uh, the, uh, the uh, current artificial intelligence technologies. Um, some of the very interesting developments we see coming out of the crypto space, right? So that's what the Intelligent Cooperation Group looks at. How can we, how can we use these new technologies to build new institutions that we can build a civilization on top of, a peaceful, uh, advanced, developing civilization? Um, and I'm, I'm actually super optimistic about that, that the more I see what's going on in the Intelligent Cooperation Group, I'm just kind of blown away by it. Um, some of what they're doing, it to me, it, it like sounds like science fiction. And I mean that in, in a very exciting, good way. In other words, oh my gosh, I guess we really are in the 2020s, right? It's uh, things are happening. Wonderful things are happening. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm basically optimistic about that. And, uh, and it gives me courage when I, you know, if you read the news too much, you can get pretty darn depressed, right? You'd better have some basis for it, for thinking things are going to get better. Well, there is. There really is. Yeah, I, I couldn't echo that more. I think uh, some of the, especially cryptography work, really just feels like magic uh, to a day person uh, like me. And it's, uh, it's really just tremendously inspiring what kinds of tools are coming out um, uh, from from crypto commerce really as a, as a sector. Uh, I think one thing that's exciting about the book is that, you know, it addresses existential risks um, and it's trying to chart a path that doesn't uh, rely on uh, solutions that may be also creating additional problems in the back end. Um, and so I think cryptography is actually a really exciting alternative and crypto commerce in particular to some of the legacy institutions that we currently think are the only tools to address existential risks. And so I think making this like third case uh, that with better te technologies of cooperation, we can actually address some of the um, pretty hairy existential risks that um, uh, we are, uh, we may be facing uh, sometime later this century, hopefully not too soon. And I think that um, that is a quite a new thing that this book brings to the table. Um, okay, great. So um Maybe to close, uh, round up uh, my uh, my my uh, flurry of questions here, I would love to uh, perhaps uh, bring you back to your personal life, if you don't mind. I would love to know a little bit. Just you know, was there anyone in particular, like um, a person or experience or a thing that you know really changed the course of your life and that you um, feel has 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 had some impetus to where you are today? I think that you know, especially our younger listeners um, or viewers, you know. I think sometimes are looking for this kind of impetus moment uh, that got people or catapulted people to where they are today. And obviously it's a lot of luck, but uh, yeah, I'd love to hear if there was uh, one of these moments for you. 
It really was. Um, as I said, I was sort of a typical student. I just, you know, I observed the world. I, I tried to figure out how I could make, how I could basically, you know, have a life in this world. Um, but then I got pulled into um, kind of the, what we could think of as the proto-effective altruism movement or the paleo-effective altruism movement, uh, which at the time was uh, because there was all this concern about resources uh, back then, it's the main focus, um, was looking at space resources, right, out um, in the solar system. So uh, what grew out of that, primarily among young people, was um, the idea that, you know, we could, we could expand human civilization into near-Earth space. We could build space settlements. We could do space mining. Uh, and this way, uh, the vision was we could lift the burden of heavy industry off the Earth. Um, so, and that's still a vision that I find inspiring. But um, very soon after I got involved in that group, um, there, was an, there was a UN treaty that we felt was going to interfere with this effort. And so we, a bunch of very young people, um, decided that we were going to go to Washington, D.C. and educate our legislatures, legislators about this, right? And fortunately, um, one of the older people involved said, let's hire a lobbyist to help us on this. So we had a professional lobbyist who directed the efforts of these young people and made appointments for us with the Congress folks. And we went in there, a bunch of, you know, people in their 20s. I was in my early 20s. Uh, and made the case for this. And uh, they were kind of flabbergasted. They were like, well, wait, who's funding you guys? They thought it was probably the uh, the space, you know, the big giant space companies like Rockwell and General Dynamics. And we said, no, nobody's funding us. We're just citizens. And these, so these, uh, these Congress folks were kind of stunned by this. Um, and in fact, we won that battle. Um, now there, uh, we had no significant opposition, which could be why we won. But the point is, when that happens to you as a young person, it really uh, makes a big impression. It's like, wait, you mean I have agency? I can help steer things? Is that even possible? Um, and the answer is yes. As a matter of fact, you can, um, because most people don't realize it, right? So there's this vacuum. So if you just step in and try to do things, there's an excellent chance that uh, you'll have an influence. So I definitely encourage young folks to just go, you know what? The whole world is open to me. I have a lot of energy. I have good ideas. Let's take a shot at it. Yeah, couldn't agree more. I think that, you know, especially from a local view in Germany growing up, I think it's really like you, you just think that in the US, people just will, will figure it out. And what could I possibly do to help? And then you come over and there's so much to, to do. So I think that, you know, especially that long-term, long-term space and long-term positive future space is just, yeah, it, it has definitely still um, a big shortage of talent. And so there's, there's something to do for, for everyone really, like everyone uh, can really plug in. Um, okay. Last question for me. Um, uh, and again, like maybe building up on this, uh, maybe it wasn't the lobbyists that, uh, that, that gave you this advice, but I would love to know, uh, was there a particularly good advice that, uh, you know, you would want to pass on uh, to other young folks uh, in the space that are just currently making up their mind about what to do. Is there a particular good thing that you want to give them along the way? Yeah, um, I would say, first, I did not ask for advice as much as I should have. And I've noticed that today's effective altruists are much better at that. I remember Luke 
Milhauser, who's now at the Open Philanthropy Project, back when he was at Miri, went around and asked for advice, not just from me, but from a lot of people. And I, ne- I never did that, but I did fortunately get some excellent advice. And I give this advice out. At, those of you who've called me for advice may have heard this from me, which is that if you have an exciting new idea that you think people should get, should get involved in, and you've got a significant amount of interest, the thing you should do, and I've heard this from Stuart Brand, who um, comes out of the whole, who did the whole Earth catalog and was kind of a, a leader of the, of the generation before mine. He said, look, you guys need to have your first conference. In other words, yes, you have a book and it's very nice. People are excited, but um, you need to get people together physically so that everybody else can see how excited the others are, right? So that there's a feeling of, wow, we have a community, we have a movement. So, and I've been, I've been, you, some of you have heard this from me. If you have an exciting idea, have a conference on it and it will really start to take off. Well, that's, and that's great advice. I also like your meta advice of asking for more advice. <laughs> so very nice. Um, okay. Well, I'll, I'll leave it there. So thanks a lot. Um, that was uh, really quite, uh, quite educative. Um, there is from my end, we will be probably releasing a short history of a few uh, innovations that came out of the foresight uh, ecosystem that should be up by the time that this podcast gets released. So in case people are a little bit more interested in digging more into what this community was up to really early on, uh, then that could be an interesting one. And I think we even have a um, a meeting with Christine uh, that uh, she uh, gave as a mentorship for our fellows. So that should also be on the uh, on the web and we will link it from this podcast episode. Um, okay, so now I would uh, ask you to shift gears a little bit. Um, now we're getting into really ex-hope territory. Um, and I'm really, really happy to um, pass it on to Beatrice for this. Uh, I don't, I think Beatrice, you had certainly my spark of ex-hope uh, having come into Foresight. I'm really, really happy to be collaborating with you so closely and uh, really excited just how you were able to uh, really accelerate Foresight's, um, Foresight's mission in the past year. And uh, so we are um, um, brief disclaimer, um, uh, in the next year, focusing much more on our existential hope, uh, vision and really binding in the technologies that we're working in, in this longer, uh, positive future thread. And, um, Beatrice will be chairing this. So I'm really happy to have you on here uh, as a co-moderator, Beatrice, and everyone will be hopefully hearing much more of you, uh, in the future. And for that, I want to give it over to you. Um, it's very nice to have you on. Thank you so much, Alison. Thank you for that intro. You're shedding my uh, inspo for existential hope too. <laughs> uh, and yeah, I just want to say, uh, well, I, um, about Christine as well, that she's the reason that I found Foresight too. I come from the effective altruism movement that Christine just mentioned, and I heard her on the eighty thousand hours podcast, and that's how I heard about Foresight the first time. Um, and I remember there was one quote that she said that it was something like. People need to have hope about the future, um, and that's a human rights. And I, that's something that's really stuck with me. That you know, it's impossible for humanity to thrive if we don't have hope about the future. Um, and so that's why I wanted to just dig into some really ex-hopey questions. So, if we think about, you know, existential angst is a concept that probably most people are very familiar with. But what's the vision of existential hope? Sure. Um, 
we, in today's world, you know, first of all, if you watch the news, all you hear is bad news, right? And when people suggest solutions, often it involves some kind of a sacrifice or a downside. In other words, yes, we can, uh, we, we can clean up the climate, but no, we'll have to all stop taking airplane trips, right? So there are these, it's presented as a trade-off or a, a very firm constraint from which there is no escape. But this is not often very true, right? The only time when the trade-offs are absolutely, are absolutely firm is when you're up against a physical law, right? If you're up against the second law of thermodynamics, you are not going to get around that, right? But we are very rarely in that situation. Almost always, um, there's a way, there is a way to advance science and technology to take advantage and expand the trade-off space. In other words, it's not a simple trade-off where we can only have a benefit by having a, a major cost that really hurts in some other area. We expand the trade-off space. For example, um, there's the, so let's say we wanted to have a much greener earth. I certainly do. I think everybody does, right? We all want to have to heal the planet. But um, can we still have the type of travel that we have today? Well, yes, as a matter of fact, you can. Um, a simple mental model would be something like, well, uh, you just need to remove the gases that are creating in the atmosphere. That's one way, sure. Um, but what's a better way? How about, uh, and this was not my idea. This is, was proposed, has been proposed by quite a few other people. I heard it originally from Eric Drexler, the Foresight co-founder. You know, it's actually much more energy efficient and faster uh, to travel through evacuated tunnels. So if you were to build these evacuated tunnels underground, uh, you could get to the other side of the planet all the way around in a, as I, if I recall correctly, in two hours, right? So it's not the case that if we want to heal the planet, we can't fly in airplanes. No, we can heal the planet and we can also have travel, which is much greener and also faster. Like you can just expand the possibility space in all directions in a positive way. And that can be done. That's what technology is for. That's why we live these luxurious lives that we do compared to the past, right? People in the past developed new technologies. Does that mean there isn't work to do? No, we have work to do. We've got to clean up the environment and there's no question about it. But, um, but we don't sit back and give up and say, oh, we can't have things that are better. No, we can have, we can have things better in multiple dimensions at one time, right? That's existential hope. Thank you so much. Um, and if we imagine, you know, uh, a thousand years, two thousand years from now, maybe sooner, um, what does a day in the future, like an existential hope future, look like to you? Sure. Um, and I would, I would say we can pull it sooner. I think we can pull it sooner. Um, let's say even a hundred years, right? So. Um, if you look at longevity science, wow, you know, in a hundred years from now, where are we going to be with human health? I think we're going to be much, much better on human health. Um, the science is super encouraging, right? I think there's no, if you were to, I would be surprised, 
if we can't make substantial, major, major improvements on human health and longevity significantly before 100 years from now, okay? How about um, the environment? Well, uh, if you look at the potential for one of our other working groups, the Molecular Machines Group, that is, that's our um, atomically precise manufacturing group and say, where are they going to be in a hundred years? I think there we get super high quality products with um, all of the chemical pollution under physical control to the extent that it doesn't merit being called pollution. You know, if you have a byproduct that you keep total control over, is that pollution? No, pollution is when you throw it in the air in the water, right? So basically, no pollute, no chemical pollution. Um, you're up against, you're always be up against um, loss of heat, right? There's that second law of thermodynamics again. You just can't get away from that one. Um, but we don't have to pollute the planet to make clean products. We don't. We can have super high quality products. Um, what about space? Well, let's see, 100 years from now. You know, um, I don't see why we're not mining the asteroids, right? So this idea that we are have our physical constraints on resources, not so much, right? Think of the amount of solar energy there is out there. It's tremendous, right? So the amount of resources are huge. So I think a lot of the constraints that seem so natural to us today, a hundred years from now, people would say, how could they think that was a, that wasn't a physical law? Why were they assuming that would never change? Sure. We got around that one. Does that mean they're not going to have problems? No, of course they'll have, they'll have new problems a hundred years from now. And it's very hard to say what they'll be. Um, but, but our current problems today, I think they're soluble. That's very, very good to hear. Good news. Um, and from your vantage point, I mean, you mentioned molecular machines, you mentioned longevity, you mentioned space. Um, are there any areas, not necessarily technologies, but also if there are any other technologies that you think we need to be able to build this future? Sure. Um, I would say... If, if we're, if you, what you're asking is, is what do we need that's not technological? Technology or from your vantage point, anything that, that we basically, what do we need to do to build this future? Sure. Well, um, I think a lot of what holds us back is just, um, I, I, one of my, one of our early advisors at Foresight called it timidity. I think that maybe, maybe we, we need another term for this, but, but feeling dot, people not realizing the problems can be solved, right? I, and I think partly that's because they read the news and all they hear about are problems. That's all the news is, right? I've kind of stopped reading it myself. It's just too depressing and they never ever cover the solutions. Which they, which do exist, right? So I would say too. So how do we encourage people? And I'll say, especially young people, because they have so much energy that needs to be directed toward these things. How do we encourage them to be more ambitious, right? I would say, uh, for example, I pointed at history and said, okay, in the past, people didn't have these 
comfortable, luxurious lives we have today. And it's because people of the past worked on these problems. Um, today, when we ask kids to learn history, all we give them is political history, right? They learn about wars. They learn about presidents and kings. How about if we teach them the history of science and technology and commerce, right? That's, that is, that's the story of human progress. And I would include in that the story of environmental progress, which does exist, right? Um, most of, many of you watching this are too young to remember, but in my lifetime, things would happen in the U.S. like fires would start in a river. A river would catch on fire, right? We've tackled that one. This does not happen anymore. The air would be like orange, literally, or you'd have orange air. Uh, it would give you a sore throat. We don't have that anymore. So have we tackled environmental problems? We have. And there have been major progress, right? Remember the ozone hole? Well, major progress has been made on that. So it's not like we have to ignore problems. We can solve problems. And if we have young people study that process, like, um, how did these things happen? Who's responsible? Who are the heroes of that, right? Why are these benefits? Why do we have these benefits? So if, if they studied the history of science, technology, and commerce, we would have a much better appreciation of who our real heroes are instead of having only political heroes. Yeah. What, um, and if we think more like uh, in terms of progress, is there any particular progress or any breakthrough that you think in the next five years? Uh, if that happens, you know that we're on track. Right. I'll, I'll look at two areas. Um, one is longevity. Um, the big hurdle there, I think, is that's holding it back is uh, whenever you do an experiment you, in human longevity, you don't, it's, you can't wait around for, to figure out how long, uh, many decades until you have to, you have fatality numbers. You can't do that, right? It's not possible. We need biomarkers that correlate really well with human longevity. And there's a lot of candidates out there, uh, a lot of discussion about, well, you know, which ones are actually tracking true longevity. But within five years, I would really like to see the community agree on a set of biomarkers that we think actually work. So that's, that's, um, that'll be a sign we're really on track there. Um, in terms of intelligent cooperation and computing, computer security, those types of areas that we work in our in our intelligent cooperation group, I uh, I just use as a signal for how we're doing. I look at uh, the startup company called Agoric, A G O R I C, Agoric.com, and the reason is that they are working on technologies that are absolutely fundamental for our success in this area. Um, I would like them to see major, major progress in the next five years. And I'm expecting to see that because, as I mentioned, they are now well-funded. Fantastic, right? We've been working toward this day for decades. So um, within five years, I expect major uh, improvements. And they sh it should be easy to track them. You just go to the agoric.com website and see how they're doing. So those are two areas I'm watching carefully. Yeah, those are very, very promising and very good concrete examples. Um, 
one thing I guess that's really important to keep in mind if you want to make progress is to not be too naive. Are there any undervalued risks or anything that you think we need to get around to solving for for making this future happen? Yeah, um, the uh, the undervalued risk I think in the longevity space is just uh, people not realizing that this is. Uh, first of all, a solvable technical problem, but also not realizing that it is an important societal problem to solve. And the reason for that is that um, there's this huge economic burden from these these uh, the frail elderly, right? These are folks who um, have extremely high healthcare costs and um, because, for example, we're looking at the boomer generation now entering that phase and the later generation, like the uh, millennials, is a smaller generation. That means you have fewer young people carrying an extremely heavy burden of financial obligation to support these elders who are very ill. It's just not workable, right? This is not workable. It also pulls resources away from things like education, which are super important. So. Uh, and the undervalued risk is that people don't realize that this is, they, they hear longevity science and they think, oh, this is for rich people. This is selfish. No, no, no. That's not what this is about. Um, this is a societal necessity in order to lift this burden off our young people. Um, in terms of undervalued risk and the intelligent cooperation side, the, the people do not understand how vulnerable we are in terms of computer security. They are starting to understand it because they're aware, for example, that there are ransomware um, software uh, packages that somehow, for example, get installed on our hospital software systems and take the hospital down unless some large amount of funding of money is transferred to some entity who's done this. So they hear about this. What they don't realize is how extraordinarily vulnerable we all are on our computers. Uh, and basically, um, it's an it's um, it's not a it's not a it's not a species level existential risk, but it's but like longevity, it is an individual existential risk. We are all at risk from this in terms of um, there could be major fatalities if we don't fix this problem. So those those are the undervalued areas that I would point out. And disregarding of those risks, would you describe yourself as positive about the future? And um, if so, what what like what made you so positive about the future? So um, I describe myself as a long term optimist and a short term pessimist. And what that means, and and what made me that way. Um, was a combination of looking at history, right, and seeing again and again this pattern of the things I want to have happen do happen. They just take longer, right? They don't happen as fast as I would like, but they happen. So um, it's also um, kind of a policy decision I've made for myself, which is we all, we've all read, I think, that optimists are more successful in life and optimists um, have more fun, frankly. So that, so there's a lot of upsides to being an optimist, um, but to avoid short-term, short-term um, disappointment, I'm a short-term pessimist. So I get the best of both worlds. Um, one of the big benefits of being an optimist is that 
you take on challenging problems and then you meet the most interesting people, right? And those of you on the call, I, I see some of them are, are these most interesting people who've been in foresight sometimes for decades, right? This is where you find the people who are stepping up to the most challenging problems and having fun at it, right? You can do both. Yeah. And maybe if we, if we want to try to make more people optimist, um, it would be nice to, to, or I find it fascinating that it's very hard for people to envision like positive long-term scenarios and like utopias. Um, but can we do anything to change this? Like, how do you pitch to someone um, existential hope? Right. Um, I mentioned for, for kids, getting them to learn um, history of science, technology, and commerce. Um, but at any age, um, I would say you can you can read that material you can there's also um there's also fiction inspirational fiction and there's not a whole lot being written now but the the older stuff is still there and it's still super uh, exciting i would say some of the earlier classic uh, science fiction is pretty inspirational it presents a vision of the future in space that's pretty inspirational um you can also go back and read fiction about um Say there's uh, there's some great history of commerce fiction written by Neville Shute that is super inspirational. So there's inspiring fiction out there. And instead of sitting around reading the news and instead of arguing with people on Facebook, it's more, uh, you know, if you're trying to relax, those are not good options. Um, go ahead and read some inspirational fiction. That'll, that's uh, relaxing and also um, will we'll give you uh, a more optimistic view and um, make you more ambitious to take on uh, take on big challenges, and that's where you'll meet the fun, exciting people. Yeah, I actually wanted to ask you about that as well. Like, um, for someone who's maybe new in this field, or do you have any particular books or movies or any type of art that you think can um, can be inspiring and can get them into this field? Yeah. Um, I mentioned the early science fiction. Uh, one of my favorites. Uh, this is this is not as early. Fortunately, there are people still writing um, upbeat science fiction. One of my favorite examples is *The Gentle Seduction* by Mark Stigler. I think that is free online now. So if you type in *Gentle Seduction* uh, into your browser, you'll probably be taken there. I think it's probably free now. So that's a great example of. Um, Visionary science fiction that will leave you uh, more upbeat about the future than you were when you before you read that story. I think. Yeah, and I think Mark was uh, in one of these meetings actually, so you can also watch a YouTube clip with him. Um, yeah. So, last question for me before um, I hand over to Allison again. It's just like someone who's new to this field. Um, wanting to work on positive futures, what should they specialize in? Yeah, I've noticed that um, in the effective altruism community, a, a huge number of folks are deciding that they all want to work on one thing, which is AI safety. Now, AI safety is an important field. There should be more work done in it, but we it's not, it doesn't make sense for every single young idealistic person to all go work on AI safety, right? There are so many other exciting 
things to work on. Uh, when you pick your area, um, one you'll see um, the the effective altruist movement mentions three criteria: important, neglected, and tractable. Now, if you look up tractable, the definition is easy. Now, there just aren't that many important, easy problems sitting around, right? There's a reason why important problems tend to be hard. And the kinds of uh, young people who get attracted to EA are idealistic, and they tend to be highly intelligent, very motivated, excited, energetic. Um, are these kids that we want to have suggest work on easy problems? No. No, these are the kinds of people who should take on the big problems, okay? So I would say um, rather than, than, than saying, well, we're all, all of us are going to go work on AI safety, I would say look at what you're good at, right? Um, and take on the hard problems. There are plenty of other hard problems in addition to AI safety, which is important, but not the only one. Um, can you do biology? There's long, we need, we need great biologists, um, and computer scientists in the, um, longevity science area, right? Um, are you good at coding? Well, in addition to AI safety, there's a whole intelligent cooperation area that Foresight is working on. Watch some of those videos. Um, can you do chemistry? We need you in molecular machines, right? We need you working on molecular machine systems so that we can have truly clean manufacturing and get rid of chemical pollution completely. So um, lots of great opportunities. So it's what are you good at? Remember, uh, this is a long-term effort. You, you don't want to be trying to do something you're not good at. Find something you're good at and how can you use that to uh, work on these important issues? Yeah, I think that uh, the, just watching the foresight videos is a good way to find some exciting and difficult problems to work on. Um, thank you so much. I think I will uh, hand over to Allison to start, maybe ask some more questions and then start wrapping up. Yeah, so I think one, two, two things that we want to bring um, into this podcast are, you know, quite um, more interactive and a little bit more um, actionable bits. And so um, one thing that uh, we'll do with this podcast is um, very likely create uh, like a, a nice like space for that and a home for that on the Existential Hope website, which um, I think a few thing, a few people in the chat have asked for specific recommendations for positive sci-fi. It is certainly where I've personally tried to keep uh, all of the good sci-fi that I read and, uh, and many uh, people here in this community, including Christine, have contributed a few bits. So I think the Existential Hope pod, uh, the Existential Hope website is where this podcast will live. And it's also where lots of, um, really interesting, I think just uh, nuggets are to A, get inspired about the future, but then also B, to find lots of organizations that are already doing fantastic work in the space. Um, and that you can really just go out tomorrow and probably volunteer for, or probably, um, uh, probably, um, even, even applied for. So, um, that's just a plug for the website. And, um, the whole reason why we founded the website is because I got tremendously inspired, um, about the concept of existential hope after reading, um, the paper on existential hope by Toby Ort and Owen Cotton Barrett from the Future of Humanity Institute. And one term that they introduce, uh, um, in addition to existential hope is eucatastrophe. Um, and that may also, um, maybe, um, would benefit from a little bit of a, a rebranding because eucatastrophe is hard to pronounce. But, uh, in, in, in a nutshell, it, um, it describes an event after, if you think of a catastrophe, 
as an event after which the expected value of the universe is much lower, then a U catastrophe would be the opposite, an event after which um, the expected value of the universe would be much higher. And obviously, you know, that's very hard to, to calculate. But if we just take it as a heuristic, right? Uh, I would love to know from you, Christine, I mean, A, if you have a... um if you have a reformulation of the term, uh, please help us coin a better term for this. Uh, there's now a small group working on this. Uh, but then also be, if, you know, could you really like concretize it? Like, do you have a specific you catastrophe um, um, moment? What would it look like if there was an event, um, um, if there was an event after which the expected value of the world would be much higher? What's a deeply ex-hope event that um, people could look forward to? Sure. Um, first, yeah, the name eucatastrophe is a catastrophe, right? It's just all, when you hear it, all, all you hear is catastrophe and you miss the U. And even if you catch the U, many people don't know that U means good. So this is just not working at all. Um, what we need is a term that means something that, that, uh, means something like big happy surprise or big good surprise. And any of you who know Latin or Greek, uh, or some combination, find out what are the words, what are the words or, uh, or the, um, the, the syllables that mean like big, good surprise and string them together. I don't care. It can be a mix of Latin and Greek. We don't care. Right. So, um, that's how I would try to come up with something else. But I think, I think you is so bad. I wouldn't even use it at all. Um, so what would be such an event, though? Something that would be like a big, happy surprise that would get people's attention and make them more optimistic? Um, I would say, for example, let's say a mouse, uh, in terms of sort of longevity, a mouse returns to active life after cryopreservation, right? So you take a mouse, you put it down to liquid nitrogen temperatures. It's, it's there for a couple of years, say. And then um, you bring it, you bring this mouse back to active life. Now, how unlikely is this? Well, it's, I think it's not as unlikely as you may think. Um, I think that there are in, very interesting preservation technologies that are being worked on, um, that this could actually happen. Um, yeah, I think, I think that could happen. It could happen sometime. I don't know when. We're talking about science here, and you can't predict dates on that stuff. But uh, for me, that would, that would, re I feel that would really get people's attention. Lovely. And I already mentioned that we're asking this question, not uh, just because we want to hear your answer, but we also want to hear uh, all of your guys' um, answers and your storifications of it. So what we'll be doing, um, and hopefully that's already up by the time that the podcast is out, is actually have a bounty on this. So we're taking this prompt that uh, Christine just gave us, and um, we ask you to use it as a story device to actually picture what such a new catastrophe would look like that Christine just described. So picture uh, a day in a life um, where um, this mouse has been brought back to life. Uh, what what does it what does such a day look like? What do um what 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 kind of hope can people uh, get from this? And I think that you know if people have read the fable of the dragon tyrant, then I think people also know what uh, kind of like power such stories can have um, for I think imagining better future, especially in longevity. Um, okay, great. Uh, I think uh, another thing that we want to do is also put a bounty out for just people producing better words for a U catastrophe. So that will maybe also already be up by the time that the podcast is launched. And so please, if you have a better um, reply, then uh, just um, uh, just Google around and you should find our bounty. Uh, okay, then I think the last big one um, uh, is another actionable piece uh, is 
we would really love to, um, I, I mean, there's different things that excite different people about the future. For some, it's listening to um, maybe a podcast like this. For some, it's reading really inspiring sci-fi. For some, it is uh, stories that we're hoping to get uh, the bounty um, the bounty um, working on. But for some, it's looking at art, right? I think art has always been a tremendously inspiring um, uh, mechanism for people to really get inspired and uh, and excited. And I think that, you know, it's one of the things that really makes civilization uh, a human civilization. And um, so I would really, we are, we are creating a, a, an, a, an art piece based on this podcast that is really incorporating the vision that um, you're producing here today. Um, and I would love to hear from you a little bit, you know, and this art piece will have as one of its features and that it will be featured in the Existential Hope Gallery. And if someone is now listening to this podcast and finds this future exciting that um, you are um, you are coloring in us here, uh, then they can buy this art piece uh, as an NFT. And so I would love to know a little bit from you what um, you know what what are people supporting by buying this um, by buying this NFT? What are people supporting by um, buying the artwork that we're producing based on the podcast? Well, before I say that, I want to back up and say, you know, I said a mouse, but if we're going to make artwork out of it, that's going to appeal to people. You know, we just don't care that much about mice compared to, say, dogs and cats. So maybe use a dog or a cat. I think that will be much more emotionally appealing. So um, in terms of what's, what it's supporting, um, I mentioned that, that uh, Foresight was kicked off with a book, Engines of Creation, and that really propelled us for decades, um, all pretty much all the way up till now almost. Um, so what we need is another great book, and it's and that's the book that our intelligent cooperation group is working on right now. Um, Allison and Mark Miller, with some help from me, are are going to be listed as the co-authors, but really we've got the whole group working on this. Um, everybody is, is edit is uh, contributing comments and edits and examples, things like that. So I think that we need to really push this book hard. So I would love to see the, uh, I would love to see the benefit from the NFT be put toward this book and getting it out there, you know, really making sure people know about it. Uh, lovely. Well, uh, I should say that if you're interested uh, in this, then um, contact us um, and, you know, we'll give you a sneak peek in uh, what the book's about. Um, all right. Lovely. Um, we're now at the hour. Um, so just want to reiterate um, um, two of the things, which is one is there'll be a bounty out for you guys to create really a day in a life of a catastrophic uh, event where... Um, where a dog <laughs> has been brought back to life and that has previously been um, quite genuinely preserved. So that's number one. And then second bit, um, you know, watch out for like more of an artistic um, uh, coloring in of uh, the bits that Christine just described and our X-Hope gallery. Our hopes and dreams uh, um, are that eventually the X-Hope gallery will actually have a virtual home in Decentraland and we may even move our offices or a part of our offices into one of these virtual worlds. So you can basically check in with us whenever you'd like and, and we may have an existential hope garden with hopefully eventually lots of really existential hopey pieces flying about there. Um, all right. So thank you so, so much, Christine. We don't want to keep you waiting for longer. We are one minute over time, which to me as a German is already terrible. <laughs> um, and so I want to thank everyone who joined here today. Um, I want to thank Beatrice for being a fantastic co-moderator. Thank you so much. Um, I, I really, uh, I like, yeah, I think I often think of you in my head as my personal Pareto-tropian, um, um, uh, yeah, like, um, 
uh, mentor or advice because I think that even when things sometimes seem superficially in conflict, you always find ways in which I think uh, there's uh, an alignment on uh, on worlds that can uh, can move into mutually uh, beneficial directions. So I think that you know you have this really strong tendency for um, making things that seem very hard suddenly uh, look really easy. So thanks a lot for um, being such an inspiring figure into in, in many of our lives. Uh, and with that, I will meet many of you for the after show party uh, on Discord in our Foresight Lounge. Uh, it was really lovely to see you and I can't wait for the next one. <laughs>